Good morning. Thank you for joining us on Easter Sunday. It's great to be able to worship God together. We also want to welcome our sister, Biddy, who has moved here from Bahrain. And if you could stand up, Biddy, there she is. Glad to have you here. Rowena told her that we make people that just move here do a dance when we stand up. They said, what do I do? And so let's see you dance, Biddy. No, just kidding. Great, great to have you here and to celebrate the resurrection. He is risen. Of course, he is. And this is a great day to celebrate that. Of course, every day, if, if you're a Christian, is a day to celebrate the resurrection, that we're alive in Christ. Also, is this, is this the couple, Ernie? So also uh, another couple from South Africa. Our sister church has recently moved. So I'm unaware of your names, but I can see your faces. So please stand up so we can welcome you guys. So. Do you, do you guys know each other? Yes. Oh, okay, good. I would speak some Afrikaans, but that, that, I'll save that for the fellowship. And we could talk. Oh, over 2,000 years ago, this is, this is when this greatest event happened in history. It's an event that kind of shifted the, the remaining course of history. Jesus is crucified, he's buried, and then three days later, he's raised from the tomb. And if you contrast the, the cross and the resurrection, there's a great deal that's different. At the cross, there's people shouting for Jesus to be killed. And there's a mob of people wanting Jesus dead. And you can almost hear the shouts when you read the gospel story. Crucify him. Crucify him. They want Jesus dead. So there's many people present at his death. And yet when we contrast that with the crucifixion, there's only a few people that come to the tomb to even see if he's there or not. And those are the people that when they come, they, they find that he's not there and they're shocked and they start spreading the news. And so while not many people are present for the resurrection, it is the event that shifted the remainder of history. And this morning we'll look at those things. And it's similar to when you see an apple in spring, the first apple that blooms or produces fruit. It doesn't mean that's the only apple we have this year. It's just a symbol of many more to come. And in the same way, the resurrection isn't just Jesus resurrecting to a new life, but he is the first fruits of many more to come. For people that believe in Jesus and accept his name, repent and are baptized, they are raised to that new life as well. And so this morning, we'll look at three things that the resurrection does for us in our practical lives. Normally what we do is we... We study through a book, and we study it verse by verse, but this morning, we're going to kind of do a topical study of the resurrection. So let's pray, and then we'll open our Bibles, starting in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. God, we are thankful for the resurrection, and we pray that as we read your words this morning, that they really do enlighten our minds and convict our hearts and help us fall more in love with you and your son and help us to live it out in an everyday relevant way to see to, to, to show a lost world that there is life that there is newness and that we can have victory because of the resurrection pray all this in christ's name amen this morning we'll look at three things that the resurrection produces. First of all, it produces power. So in your life you have access to resurrection power. The resurrection also restores relationships. So anytime that they're fractured or broken or dysfunctional, 
The resurrection restores that. And lastly, the resurrection brings justice to a world that's crying for justice. First of all, let's talk about the resurrection producing power. Just think for a moment about the amount of power involved in raising a body that's been dead for three days back to life. And I just want you to consider that. Imagine someone you know dead and buried for three days. And the incomprehensible image of them coming back to life. And what kind of power would be able to bring a dead body back to life? It's almost unimaginable. And that's why the resurrection produces such power. In Ephesians chapter 1, if you can turn there, if you have a Bible, if not, it'll be on the screen for you. Paul is hoping that the church in Ephesus and us today really can understand what kind of power that we have access to. And he's praying for the church, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people... I have not stopped giving thanks for all you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. As Paul prays for the church, he says, please open their eyes so they can know you better. And then in verse 18, here's what he says specifically. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which, you, to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and, verse 19, his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And so as Paul prays for this church in Ephesus, one of his very specific prayers is, I hope you get the power available to you. It's the same exact power that raised Jesus back to life after he was dead for three days. Romans 6 tells us this is a very personal thing. It's not just a distant event, but when we're baptized, we're connected to his death and connected to his resurrection. We have that power available to us. But often it just sounds cliche. If we don't truly embrace the incomprehensible power that we have. But it's easy to think about some power that's available in today's society, for instance, in medicine and technology, right? I mean, they're doing some incredible things today in science and technology. There's a new program called CRISPR. And if you're a lot smarter than me and study this, you could explain it probably a lot better. But it's simply a cut-and-paste program for DNA, They can look into your DNA and find DNA that's not working properly or that causes disease. It's like when you look at a Word document and you use the find feature to find words. And it finds all that words in that document. And then you can go and replace those words with the right word or another word. That's basically what this program is. It searches your DNA, finds stuff that's not right 
cuts it out and then can put new stuff in there. Now, they're, they're experimenting with this, but this is wild stuff, okay? Cutting and pasting your DNA. However, despite how awesome that is, that is not enough power to raise a body that's been dead for three days back to life. Despite how incredibly cool that is. This, of course, is what you many know as a triboelectric nanogenerator. I knew that's what most of you were thinking when you saw that. Now, what that does is, is some basic rules of electricity is when, when two materials interact that have a positive and negative, it can create or har- you can harvest energy from that, right? So if you're coming down a slide and you get a static shock, that's, that's something like that principle. But what they're using these triboelectric nanogenerators for are harvesting energy from snowflakes, Because as snow falls, it has a positive charge. And so when you rub it against the right material, you can produce some kind of energy. So what scientists are doing is they're trying all different kinds of materials to interact with the snowflake. That's kind of a cool job, eh? And then what, what they found is that silicon produces the most energy from a snowflake. Now, it's not a knot, and it's not, it's not a lot. It's not significant yet. But the very fact that somebody figured out how to harvest energy from a snowflake is baffling. Isn't it? And, and consider how much, you know, 46 million square kilometers of the earth gets pretty significant snowfall each year. So if this, if this thing works, you can really upscale this and produce some serious energy. But despite how cool that is, it's still not enough power to raise a dead body that's been dead for three days back to life. And that's some really cool stuff, by the way. And hopefully this, all this works. You may have seen this in the news recently. That is a human heart. It's tiny. You see it fit in the hand. But Israeli researchers have created it and printed it out from a 3D printer. Now, I don't even know how this stuff works now. <laughs> you know, but this, this is some crazy power, crazy science, crazy technology. And at some point, it could help, you know, people that have heart trouble. And, and they believe it might be the world's first regenerated human heart, which, which is just crazy. But still, despite that, that's not enough to raise a body that's been dead for three days back to life. And many of you, I've talked about this before, cryogenics, where they freeze a body that has died. Some of these bodies have had something wrong with them, some disease of some sort. And what they do is they pay to have their bodies frozen in hopes that some point later in the future, they can bring that body back to life and then fix whatever disease they have. All right? So if you're interested in this, it's like 200000 to freeze your body. Or if you just want to tone it down a little bit, you could pay about 80000 just for your head. <laughs> so you could consider that option if you're thinking about it. But even this, this, like, this is just in the hopes that at some point they'll figure something out to bring them people back to life. And even when they do, who knows what in the world... I mean, that's just some crazy stuff, all right? And all this science, all this power, all this technology, and all this stuff that we're capable of doing, but still no one can bring a body that's been dead for three days back to life, except God. 
This is incomprehensible power that raised him back to life, comes out of the tomb, and starts the movement that we're a part of today. Now imagine if you have access to that power. And you woke up tomorrow morning and you understood what the power of the resurrection meant for you practically and personally. How would your life be different? Knowing that you have access to the same power that raised Jesus from the dead in your life. It'd be drastically different. And that's the truth of this passage. I want you to know that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside you and me. So what does that look like? Well, there's heaps of people that struggle with addiction, right? And it doesn't matter if you're Christian or non-Christian. When you become a Christian, you have the power to overcome this. Because of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus back to life. And it doesn't matter what your addiction is. Some people are addicted to pornography. Some people to alcohol. Some eating. Some shopping. Some spending money. Some binge watching Netflix. (laughs) It doesn't matter, right? But all of these cycles of addiction, people find it really hard to break free from. I mean, they develop entire programs and entire counseling sessions for people to break free from this kind of addiction. But if you have the power that raised Jesus back to life, eventually you can break free from this stuff because of the power that lives inside of you. Think about your family generations, you know, like going back 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, even 100 years and and what they've passed down to you, both good and bad. Because that's what family does. And think about the traits and characteristics that have been handed out to you personally. The way you behave. The way you act. The way you handle conflict. Or don't handle conflict. The way you communicate. Or you don't communicate. Whatever it is, think about what your family has given you. And how hard it is to break out of that cycle. It's hard. Unless you have the power that raised Jesus back to life living inside of you. And when you do, you change the trajectory of your family for eternity because of the spirit that lives inside of you. Or think about your own personal character and all the things you wish, oh, I wish I could change this or I've struggled or battled with this for so many years and how do I break free from this? Sometimes many people feel like that. Even as Christians, the good news is you can Because this power available, raised Jesus from the dead, certainly it can help you change your character. It's changed me in many ways. I'm not really an emotional guy. And because of the Holy Spirit changing me, I've developed a little hints of emotion. (laughs) Surely I have. You know, sometimes I'm actually moved. When my son, Luke, when he wears the same clothes, like two days in a row... I just get moved, and I think, that's my son. I'm so proud of you, son. It just stirs an emotion in me, you know? And it's just like, man, that's my boy. Look at him. He's wearing his uniform like his daddy, you know? But that, that's kind of a comical thing. But even as I've grown up and become a Christian, I have felt like, oh, I've, I've, I'm able to love more. I'm able to care more. I'm actually be concerned about people's lives and get in people's lives, despite if they're perfect lives or they appear perfect or they're clearly messed up. It doesn't matter. And that's only happened because there's a power living inside of me that helps me change and it helps you change as well. The resurrection produces power. Secondly, the resurrection restores relationships. You can turn back to Genesis 3 for this one, but it doesn't really take a degree in counseling to notice that 
human relationships are strained. Right? If you've ever been in any kind of relationship with any human being, then you know that it's difficult to carry on a relationship. And the Bible explains this problem and it explains the solution, right? Back in Genesis chapter 3, the problem begins. Adam and Eve, they get put in the garden. God creates everything. And then they decide to disobey, and it goes south from there. And as a result, God explains the consequences. In Genesis chapter 3, here's part of the consequences that he gives. Now, what happens is he curses the snake, and that's right before this. That's verse 14 to 15. And then he gives consequences to the woman, and he gives consequences to the man, and he curses the soil. So not man and woman aren't cursed, but the serpent is cursed, and the soil is cursed, and men and women, they get disrupted in their role and in their relationships. So look what verse 16 says in chapter 3. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And why is that significant? Because when God created Eve... She was to be Adam's helper. And she, she was to help him co-reign and to, to be fruitful and multiply. And now as a result of their disobedience, not only is it painful for her to carry on this role, but now she's conflicted and, and their relationship with her husband is kind of dysfunctional now because of what's happened. And so this isn't just for Adam and Eve, but the relationships that you'll see throughout Genesis and the Bible are way out of order. And so relationships have been broken. They're dysfunctional. And they're twisted because of what happened in the garden. And so that's one of the main points is that their relationship with one another is fractured and their relationship with God has been fractured. And it it doesn't take long to look in the story of Genesis. These are just four examples out of many. The top left, you may notice that. That's Cain and Abel. The original Super Smash Brothers, right there, right? Man, this, that's, 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 a, that's a relationship gone bad by Genesis chapter 4. In the far right and the top, that's young Joseph being sold by his brothers, being put into a pit, left for dead, and eventually sold into slavery. How's that for good family dynamics there? In the bottom left, that's Jacob and Esau. They're at odds because one of them stole the other's birthright, and now they're at odds for many, many years. Broken relationships. And it's grotesque. In the bottom right, that's Lot and his daughters, who they sleep with him, become pregnant, and then it becomes generational conflict for many years to come. I mean, that's just four examples in the first book of the Bible. That's crazy. That really doesn't sound like this is where you want to get your parenting advice from. But that's the origins of the Bible. Broken, fractured relationships. And there's really no hope unless the resurrection really took place. There's a a psychologist, he's Australian, and he conducts these seminars about broken relationships. And think about it, you know, there's, there's, there's many even parenting seminars today for parents that go to these seminars because they, they have broken relationships with their kids. And they're trying to fix that. that. That's a direct result of what happened in Genesis. 
But this Australian psychologist, he says, when he does these seminars, he'll have about 100 men in his seminars. And he'll do some questionnaires and exercises. And, and normally 33 of them have not spoken to their fathers in decades. And then another 33 say when they speak to their fathers, it normally ends in conflict. There's anger or one of them storms out. And then another 33 say they meet with their fathers, try to meet with their fathers, but it's more out of duty. It's not really relationship. And so when he has these seminars for 100 men, there's typically only one that says, I have a functional, warm relationship with my father. And I, I can, you know, if, if you're a man, you, 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 that probably resonates with you at some level. But that's, that's a direct connection to the broken relationships that we see back in Genesis. And it spirals and it spirals. And how do we break out of this? Unless the resurrection gives us the power to restore these relationships. Think about your own life. It's often, you know, trivial matters that blossom into grudges, aren't they? And break down these relationships. And then it happens in a culture. It happens in societies or nations. And then it just goes on and on and on. When these relationships break down. In the secular world they have counseling and stuff. Which is valuable but limited. And so in the resurrection. When Jesus is on the cross in John 19. You don't have to turn there. It's on the screen. This is where Jesus starts to bring things back together. And this is a moving moment. When he's about to die, he makes this gesture as a foreshadowing of what's to come. In verse 19, or in chapter 19, verse 25 through 27, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and his disciple, whom he had loved, standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. And, and so what is Jesus doing here in this passage? Well, yes, he's taking care of his mother, right? That's, that's kind of an obvious point. But what he's also doing is he's reuniting two people who are not related by blood. And he's making family. So, John, here is your mother. Mother, here is your son. They're not, they're not physically or blood related. And he brings them together and says, here is your family now. And when he dies and resurrects on the cross, Ephesians says he does that for humanity. He brings Jew and Gentile together. He creates a new family. He restores relationships because of the power of the resurrection. If you think about it, everybody wants a relationship. Everybody desires that at some level. And at some point in the timeline of your life, you'll experience a disruption in your relationship. It doesn't matter what life stage. In primary school, it's when your best friend isn't your best friend anymore. And they come home, and I thought they were my best friend. That happens, you know, often with little kids, you know. They're little best friends, and then the next week, there's another best friend. Or it may happen in high school when the guy you like or the girl you like doesn't like you, and your heart gets broken because that's a broken relationship. In marriage, it's maybe when your spouse has secrets and then you find out about those secrets and you feel like, oh, you've been lying to me. There's a fracture in the relationship. Or it's a parent and you have no idea how to connect to your kids because there's a relationship disconnect. You're going to experience this at some level in your life. 
That's the nature of humanity. And the resurrection is the only event that brings people together. Genuinely. That's the power of the resurrection. It's the dominant metaphor in the New Testament. Family. The resurrection brings people together. Here is your mother. Here is your son. If you have broken relationships or fractured or dysfunctional, the resurrection is the means to bring all of these together and restore these. Amen? Lastly, the resurrection brings justice. Turn to Acts chapter 17. In a world where justice is lacking and sometimes even partial justice prevails, I think everybody wants true justice. When you watch the news and you see some of the atrocities that happen, there's no way you can walk away and think, oh, I, I hope something good happens to this person. If you're honest with yourself, you think, when, oh, when, when is something going to, when is the judgment, when is the real justice going to happen? When are people going to be held accountable? I mean, even here in, in, in New Zealand, the recent, the recent shootings is just horrible. And you want justice to take place, right? Anybody would want that. But only true, genuine justice comes because of the resurrection. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is speaking to philosophers. And he's tailored his presentation so they can understand it. But look what he says in verse 31. After he's... Appealed, appealed to their poets. And in verse 29, I'll start there. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But he now commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so as Paul is, is, is pleading with this group of philosophers, he says, look, even your own poets claim we're offspring, and, but he's not living in temples. He's, he's supreme and he's sovereign. And at some point, he's going to come back and judge. Now, up until he arrived, he overlooks and he's patient with humanity. And he overlooked all the ignorance. But now he's calling you to change your mind. He's calling you to repent. And guess what? He's coming back to judge. And he's proven this by raising Jesus from the dead. And we will all have some judgment. And imagine this claim, you know, that, that he, he's talking to this philosophers. And, and he's, he's saying that there's going to be someone that will judge the world with justice. Who's capable of that? Nobody. Everybody's impartial. Everybody's biased. Almost any judge can be bought. Almost anybody can be swayed. Even, even people that have real rock-hard convictions. It seems like everybody has a price and, and justice, you know, echoes of it or shadows of it are in our earth. But, but it's not true justice. And we see it in corrupt governments, we see it in nations, we see it in companies. Everybody wants some kind of genuine justice. And plus, we all have a hard time when the lens is pointed at us. It's easy to say, oh, let's, let's give justice to other people, but when it comes our way, well, why, why is everything pointed at me now? 
And so everybody has a hard time with this, but at the same time, we yearn for it. We yearn for justice. And that's why, you know, when you see these documentaries and, and about crimes and crimes people have committed, one of the most common responses when they interview people is something like this. I thought he was such a good guy. There's no way little Billy could have ever done that. You know, they always think there's no way. There's no way that person could have been like that. And what does that tell us? It tells us we're not good at judging. We just look at the appearances. Only God can see the motives of the heart. We always get it wrong. We always get it wrong. People are always fooled. There's no way that could have been. There's no way. Or sometimes it's very clear, but most of the time it's like, there's no way. And that's because we don't know men and women's hearts. But in, in, in the gospel it says that Jesus will expose the secrets in your heart. And so praise God for that. There, there is a time coming when Jesus comes and reveals everything and judges everything. That may be good news, that may be bad news, but it's news nonetheless. It's coming. And a lot of people think that's negative, but God's judgment isn't random. It's not like he picks names out of a hat and says, Raymond, ah, ha, ha, ha. I mean, this is, it's, it's not a random hat trick that God does. He, he gives people chance. He give, he's waiting patiently to see if people respond to the gospel. But there's two big judgments that are going to happen. One is for people that are religious. Over and over in the Gospels, you'll see Jesus rail against people that are religious. And often they think they can hide behind religion. I can look good. I can appear good. But then when the last day comes, they knock. And Jesus says, I don't even know who you are. And so just because you come to church or you try to play a religious game, that doesn't mean anything. God sees your heart. And so be careful of becoming religious. And it's also going to be a surprise for people that think they can hide things. Just because you're in the grave doesn't mean your secrets won't be revealed. That's scary. You can't hide in the grave. And people try. They say, I'm going to take this. You hear that? I'm going to take this to my grave. No, you're not. It's going to be exposed. And praise God for that because we desperately need someone to peel back the real, the real situation. We desperately need someone to see to the heart of things and to see what's really going on to judge justly once and for all. In the Psalms, they celebrate that. They say God is coming back and he will judge with great justice. Praise God. The trees in the fields are clapping because justice will finally reign. And it's a good thing. Because finally, someone will judge the man, the hearts of man and woman. The resurrection means a lot of things, and, and it means a lot of things to you personally and to the church as, as collectively. But I, I hope and pray that today we can become a people who have a powerful life because we tap into the same power that's available from the resurrection of Jesus. I pray that we become a people who can have restored relationships. Think about your own personal relationships. And if they're, if they're broken, then let the resurrection heal them and fix them. And lastly, don't wait too late to be judged. Embrace the resurrection now so you can meet your maker with, with great sincerity and say, praise God, the just, just, the just judge will come and reign for eternity. Amen.